The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome to Trad Reviews. My name is Stephen Heiner, and I will be your host tonight for episode three of our series that seeks to look at a book, a film, and a board game within the context of a Catholic perspective. And before we get started tonight, I will start us with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. So as I mentioned in the beginning, uh, Trad Reviews is a show that seeks to look at different aspects of culture. In our case specifically, we're usually going to take on a book, a film, and a board game. And today we're going to do that by looking at Monsignor Robert Hugh Benson's famous novel, Lord of the World, Alfred Hitchcock's uh, masterpiece, I Confess, and chess, a, a classic game if there, there ever was one. Um, we're going to get right into our first topic, which is about uh, Robert Monsignor Robert Hugh Benson's Lord of the World. In so doing, it might make some sense to give you a little bit of background into Monsignor Benson and and how he came to Catholicism uh, in order to help you better understand this, this uh, what I consider to be his best work. So Monsignor Benson was born in 1871, and he died in, in 1914. And he was a contemporary of G.K. Chesterton, Hilar Bellock, Monsignor Ronald Knox. And he came to Catholicism in the after effects of the Oxford movement those of you who don't know the Oxford movement, it was put together by um, Cardinal Newman and some other high church Anglicans who started taking a real look at what they could, the, the branch theory, the idea that Anglicanism was simply a branch of Catholicism. They saw themselves as part of the Catholic Church, but just a different branch. And, and as they went back to look at arguments and um, various uh, reasonings that had been used in the past, they found a lot of them wanting. And they they moved on uh, into Catholicism, and uh, obviously they would have to be conditionally or, or in most cases absolutely ordained because Anglican orders were deemed to be invalid by Leo XIII. Well, uh, Monsignor Benson was part of this group. He uh, had come into the church um, in 1904 after realizing that uh, that Catholicism was was the right way he had come over from the Anglican profession. That being said, 
he knew that he was coming from a particular line of work. That is to say, when a Catholic priest enters, he may come in as a religious priest. So, for example, Father Bernard, who's on our network as a Benedictine, uh, or Father McKenna is a secular priest, and they have a particular mission or charism. With Monsignor Knox, not Monsignor Knox, uh, getting my Monsignors mixed up. With Monsignor Benson, the challenge was he was coming over in Medias Res. He was already someone who had an apostolate of sorts. He was working with students. He was a writer. He was an intellectual. And so he came, you have to keep in mind, his priesthood was on his own patrimony, meaning he didn't have an apostolic mission. He wasn't in charge of a parish or, or a, a Newman Center before there were Newman Centers. He, he, he basically was given permission to, to give sermons and to write, and, and that's what he did. He, he really, I don't want to say locked himself away, uh, but he, he didn't have pastoral work. So he was ordained in 1904, and in between 1904 and 1908, he, he already started to write novels, historical novels uh, related to the English Reformation. But in 1908, he finally had an opportunity to break away, and for the next six years of his what would be shortened life, he uh, would would write, and, and we have, thankfully, a lot of the products of that work. He was made a Monsignor by um, His Holiness, St. Pius X, and, um, and died quite young, unfortunately. Uh, the, other, the other novel you might know him for is Come Rack, Come Rope. Uh, which is was set in the time of Elizabeth I. And I hope we may cover that in a future trad reviews. But today we're going to talk about Lord of the World. And uh, the challenge, of course, is whenever I do trad reviews, I, I try to have guests on because uh, I don't I don't simply want, I don't simply want to have a, a show where I'm the only person talking the whole time. I, I enjoy conversations and I enjoy hearing other people's perspectives. I suppose that's part of why I founded a, a radio network is I enjoy talking to people. But you're you're just stuck with me this evening. I picked a particularly bad uh, a weekend to record the, today's show. So. I will do my best to keep you um, engaged and entertained about uh, these various topics. Lord of the Worlds, a dystopian novel. Uh, this is something I have to admit I have a particular love for. Um, the, the genre includes books like 1984, Brave New World, A Canticle for Leibowitz, which is a fantastic uh, Catholic and science fiction novel. So you might you might get turned off a little bit immediately if I say science fiction and you might... Uh, you might have the nerd alert uh, red light go off, and uh, I would just assure you, uh, don't worry about the, the nerd part of this. The science fiction aspect of it is something that it's written in a, in a future dystopia, a dystopia as opposed to a utopia. Right? If a utopia is a perfect, wonderful, happy future, a dystopia novel turns that on its head. It, it looks at everything that could go wrong. We saw this last year in the United States uh, in the rash of end of the world post Earth post modern movies, where everything was terrible. We had Elysium with Matt Damon, we had um, Oblivion with Tom Cruise. We had a number of these movies come out just just 
nothing but a, a bleak emptiness in the future. And I think it's in, I think it's informative, and I think it's instructive because if a society that is claims to be post-Christian and, and is entirely outside of Christ's kingship can look into the future, can look into the mirror and see nothing but ugliness, then then certainly the Christian, informed as as he is by by scripture and and by tradition and and, and by the prophecies, we we know that there will be a reckoning because that. Not only does justice demand it, but because our Lord has told us it will happen. And what Lord of the World does really well is put that within strikingly modern con- contexts. The definition of a classic varies, but one of the key definitions is it's a book that never goes out of print, but it's a book that feels like it could be read or written in, in your own time. And that's that's why Lord of the World stands up so well. If you read it now, it doesn't doesn't seem old. And in fact, when you read some of the things that he talks about, if we just talk about the science fiction side, he talks about transatlantic air travel. Well, this wasn't a reality in the early 1900s. And he he puts that within the, the story construct, the, the problem of, of euthanasia and that it would be widespread. And not that many uh, weeks ago, we had the, the King of Belgium, a so-called practicing Catholic, sign into law, something that allows children to be euthanized. So, you know, more than 100 years ago, Monsignor Benson is writing about euthanasia teams. There's a part, early part in the book where a, a volor, which is, he, he pictures as sort of, a, I would say hovercraft probably is what he was thinking of, uh, crashes. And these people rush onto the scene and you think they're, they're paramedics, but they're not. They're euthanasia teams and they're there to Put everybody out of their misery because the suffering is simply something that you can't uh, can't tolerate. So the and I have to say throughout today there's going to be spoiler alert. So I'm just going to give you a spoiler alert now. If this is a book that you'd like to read uh, and you're worried that I'm going to spoil it for you, let me just tell you it's worth reading. Stop the podcast now. Go read it and then come back. Same thing with the movie. When I talk about, uh, I confess, I'm I'm going to be talking about spoilers. So be forewarned that if you feel like I'm going to take all the enjoyment of the book out for you, I shouldn't because the book's quite quite wonderful. Even with me giving away major plot points, I think you're you're still really going to enjoy the writing and how he does it. I, I can't I can't capture that in a podcast but I hope I can encourage you to, to go do so. So the, the novel is about the Antichrist and not in the hysterical three days of darkness, get your beeswax candles, uh, Antichrist novel, but really the seduction of a, a man who will be widely admired. And I, it's interesting as I, I read it, I, I thought of uh President Obama in the United States, he's as close in, in my lifetime. Obviously, there may be others, you know, people who are older than me may have seen other people treated this way. But this idea of the secular savior, someone who who we can put our faith and trust and our belief in. And this character is a man named Julian Felsenberg. And Felsenberg is the man who brings universal peace. Uh, universal brotherhood is the phrase that's used in the book. 
by negotiating a peace between the remaining major powers. And in that way, it's constructed a lot like 1984. There's this assumption that the British Empire will persevere, America will as well, and the East, in its own way, will have uh, power. And and these are the three major blocks. And once you've negotiated a peace, well, that's it. It's the end of history, uh, to borrow a phrase from uh, Francis Fukuyama. And that's it. We don't have to worry about God anymore. And what happens at first is the Catholics, who at this point have been marginalized anyway, there is a pope in Rome. In fact, all the remaining royalty of the world have gone to live in Rome as well. And many Catholics have just to live near the outskirts of Rome. And and, uh, there are lots of parts of that description that are are fascinating and interesting in their own way, but but the there is a there is a an understanding that when Felsenberg comes to power, that well we don't have to worry about the Catholics because that's that's just a, a quaint little you know sect. No one no one really cares about Catholicism anymore. And in fact, uh, uh, Monsignor Benson in the in the beginning of the novel, uh, there's a prologue. Uh, which 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 sets us up uh, for this, and I should I should probably should probably read this to you because it's uh, it, it really gives you a sense not only of his writing but um, but of of the theme. Okay, here it is. Briefly, there are three forces: Catholicism, humanitarianism, and the Eastern religions. About the third, I cannot prophesy, though I think the Sufis will be victorious. But in Europe and America, there is no doubt that the struggle lies between the other two. We can neglect everything else. And I think, if you wish me to say what I think, that humanly speaking, Catholicism will decrease rapidly now. It is perfectly true that Protestantism is dead. Men do recognize at last that a supernatural religion involves an absolute authority, and that private judgment in matters of faith is nothing else than the beginning of disintegration. And it is also true that the Catholic Church is the only institution that even claims supernatural authority with all its merciless logic. She has, again, the allegiance of practically all Christians who have any supernatural belief left. There are a few faddists left, especially in America and here, but they are negligible. That is all very well. But on the other hand, you must remember that humanitarianism, contrary to all persons' expectations, is becoming an actual religion itself, though anti-supernatural. It is pantheism. It is developing a ritual under Freemasonry. It has a creed. God is man and the rest. It has, therefore, a real food of a sort to offer to religious cravings. It idealizes, and yet it makes no demand upon the spiritual faculties. Then they have the use of all the churches except ours and all the cathedrals, and they are beginning at last to encourage sentiment. Then they may display their symbols, and we may not. I think that they will be established legally in another 10 years at the latest. Now, we Catholics, remember, are losing. We have lost steadily for more than 50 years. Now, when you read that, you think, well, yes, <laughs> that, is, that is exactly true. Um, that the idea of, of God as man, that we will save ourselves and that God was always just a fantasy of ours. Sounds horrible to say. When you say it out loud, you see the, the, the black letters on white paper. But the reality is that's what we live in. We live under the assumption that we are God. We live under the assumption that uh, 
that this life is about what we want and that there will be no consequences and nothing at the end. And so uh, reading about this, and again, the mention of Freemasonry is particularly interesting because that is also your friendly neighborhood Freemason or your friendly neighborhood lodge. And Freemasonry really is one of the most uh, disgusting, horrible things that, that mankind has ever invented for itself. And it, it comes in the guise of friendliness and uniting all people. Isn't that nice? But the only way that can be done is in Christ. And any, any uh, effort that does it without him is not only doomed to failure, but should be condemned and has been condemned by the church numerous times. Um, what else, what else I really, what else I really enjoy about Lord of the World, uh, apart from the fact that it's quite a fast read, about 270 some pages, and uh, it's free on Kindle. Uh, I don't have a Kindle. I have a Kindle app for my iPad. So you can just download, um, you can download it uh, to your app. Now, if you don't have an iPad or a Kindle, don't worry about that. If you go to Amazon, everyone has access to something called a cloud reader and search for Lord of the World under the Kindle category and then, you know, click purchase. It'll say $0.00. Click purchase and then say send it to your Amazon cloud reader and it'll click and Amazon's quite intuitive. It'll help you set it up. So, as I was saying, one of the things apart from it being a, a fast read, something that will, will keep you on the edge of your seat. I think uh, I was speaking to Joshua Gunsher, one of our hosts, about this uh, last week, and he said it was a book that he actually uh, stayed stayed homesick from work to finish. Uh, don't don't quote me on that, but it was something along the lines that he couldn't he couldn't stop reading it. He needed to finish it. And it is it is a tour de force. It's something that will will keep you moving. Now it does have a slow start, and I don't don't you have this impression that uh, I don't know what I'm talking about because the first few pages you're like, well, what does he mean? It's a tour de force. Give it about 50 pages to to move in, and then it'll really start to to pull you along. As I said uh, before, I interrupted myself. The the book uh, once Felsenberg comes to power. The idea of Catholicism is something that could be dismissed. It's like, well, we'll get rid of the Catholics because who who takes their religion seriously? They're just a bunch of crazies. But then what happens is the the idea of treatment as crazies is, well, we have to save people from being crazies because they'll contaminate the rest of us. And we're going to have mandatory Masonic worship. And so they have these feasts of maternity or fertility which we have, we've seen, and part of it is the Olympic Games. We have that that is a religious, that is quite entirely a religious ceremony. Uh, and so we're already seeing things like this. This isn't a prophecy that, that hasn't come true. Monsignor Benson knew exactly what he was talking about. We've given a great gift by our Lord in, in order to see this. And then, of course, the last stage is, apart, we ridicule you. And then we think that you're strange, and then we have to kill you. And of course, that's where the the suspense in the book takes us is uh, having to wipe out. Uh, there is a part in the book in which all the popes, the the pope and all the cardinals are wiped. Well, they think that the pope and all the cardinals are wiped out. But it isn't exactly what happens. And then, of course, the final act of the book uh, revolves around destroying uh, the pope and what what is thought to be the remaining Christians, because once you've destroyed them, then you've destroyed the church and uh, 
and the gates of hell have prevailed and humanity will be free finally from the oppression of the tyranny of, of a device like Catholicism. So I, as I have said with uh, previous recommendations on trad reviews, I can't, uh, I can't read the book for you and nor do I want to give away all the plot points, but I want to give it you enough of a taste to make you want to to read it yourself. Obviously, last time we had a spiritual book, uh, which is quite different from a novel. But in some ways, this is a spiritual book. Uh, it is a novel, don't get me wrong, but there are parts which are, are very, very focused on the faith. And I, you know, I, was, I found myself being interrupted to I I wouldn't necessarily say I switched into prayer right away, but I, I moved really into some religious thought, um, explicitly religious thoughts, and not just to, in the broader sense about you know what's happening with the world, but within my own life as well. So it is a it's an excellent book, well worth your time, and something we can strongly recommend here at Trad Review. So on a on a five star scale, I give it a, a four point five. With the with the caveat that yes, my Nicholas uh, wants butter as the strictest judge I know, so he might only give it a four, uh, whereas I'm the ENTJ enthusiastic choleric, and I would probably give it a four point five. So take it for what it is. If you're a melancholic in your family, downgrade it. Uh, if you're a choleric, then we're we're speaking the same language. For those of you who are just joining us, you're listening to Trat Reviews on the Restoration Radio Network, Episode 3. I am your host, Stephen Heiner, and we just covered Lord of the World. What we're going to talk about next is uh, Alfred Hitchcock's I Confess. And uh, I was hoping that uh, Justin Soder would be able to, to join me for tonight's show. Unfortunately, again, I picked a bad weekend for taping. He is traveling this weekend, so he's not available. We had a chance to talk about some things, and I had him record his own thoughts, partly based on on some things that uh, we had already spoken about. And so I'm going to play that for you now. And then after Justin's done speaking, I'll, I'll talk about some of my points of agreement and disagreement with him, and then some of the things that, that I... I really liked. So without further ado, I thought Hitchcock's I Confess was a great movie. I was very surprised after watching it to go online and to read some of the criticisms and to find out that for diehard Hitchcock fans, that this was not one of their favorite movies, that they felt that the storyline was too busy, that it played out too quick in the movie. And of course, I would probably have to argue that those people weren't Catholic, because if you watch this movie as a Catholic, you're going to see many storylines developing and uh, some storylines aren't so obvious um, many, you know, the ending twist was, was pretty incredible. And to see through the eyes of the faith, how Keller represents all of us at the very end, uh, was, uh, was very moving and very touching. I thought too, and like any of these old Catholic movies, when you go back and you see how, um, how received, or should I say, how, how revered that the, that the priest was, compared to today. And I thought that was well illustrated in the conversation when Father Logan was first implicated possibly as a suspect in the murder of uh, Villette. And the the horror from the investigator and from the district attorney, oh, now this just can't be. He's a priest. Are you sure? Are you sure? 
it showed how respected the priest was. And you compare that with today. I mean, a priest would be just any other suspect. He would be part of, oh, yeah, yeah, he probably did it. So it shows how the, the priesthood as an institution, which was, uh, it still is, of course, worthy of respect, but today it's just totally fallen to pieces by the conduct as we all know about. So I also thought there were some powerful parts in the movie where, uh, you know, for example, when, when Keller goes into the church and he begins talking with Father Logan, and you saw that, uh, that real human connection where they're he could obviously see that something was very wrong with, with Keller and he was very shaken. And, uh, you know, Keller was obviously he was, he was speaking from the motive of guilt and, uh, you know, for what he did, but there's a moment between Keller and father Logan where Keller sort of kneels upright somewhere and says, father, I want to go to confession. And you see the look on father Logan's face. And it was almost as if, okay, there's a there's an unspoken moment there where Keller looks at Father Logan. And Father Logan looks back at him, and he gets a very stoic look on his face, and he he nods his head very uh, you know very sternly, and then he grabs his stole and goes into the confessional. And you could almost see in that moment of the movie where the priest becomes the priest, where he is now in his official role, and the friendly conversation he was having with well, I said friendly, but but the uh, the very emotional conversation that he was having with Keller sort of ended, and it was like okay. Now I have to go be, now I have to go be a priest in my official capacity. And I thought with no words spoken, but just the camera angles and the way that the two looked at each other, that there was sort of like a, you know, a thousand words spoken without saying one. So I thought that was a very powerful part. Um, I thought the backstory of Father Logan's life, uh, you know, he, he went to the war and he, he joined the army and he, you know, he, he did his time in the war, and then he came back a changed man. And uh, of course, you know his uh, the love of his life was no longer the love of his life because he was he was called to a vocation. And uh, I thought somewhat of that story in the movie. And this is my I would say one of my few criticisms. I just thought that maybe they maybe Hitchcock didn't have to go enough into the backstory between he and Ruth, uh, your father Logan and Ruth. Um, I, I just I thought that was a little bit gratuitous. But I don't mean gratuitous in a scandalous way, but just a gratuitous, and I wasn't sure this needed to be shown this much. I mean, it could have been said very, um, very succinctly that they they had a you know they had a relationship before he he found that you know he was called to called to the priesthood. I would say that's one of my only criticisms. Perhaps maybe um, a, you know a little bit maybe scandalous alone time with with uh with Ruth on the on the ferry there again he was in a public place but you know i mean i think i'm kind of picking uh, you know i'm 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 sort of you know grasping at straws here when it comes to criticism i thought the ending twist on the movie i i thought for sure that that um uh, Keller's wife, Alda, was going to really blow the lid off the whole thing because she knew from the very beginning that Keller killed um, Valette. So I, I, was, I was expecting any given time during the whole movie, because you know, in, in true Hitchcock fashion, he continues to keep the person who can blow the lid off the whole story. He continues to put them in the limelight. So you'll see, you'll see flashes for her, and she plays a prominent role where you know, she's, she's cleaning up the rectory and Father, Father Logan you know, will, will walk through and they'll exchange glances like, 
I know that you know that I know. <laughs> and so I thought that was a good twist. And that was, and that was definitely pure Hitchcock. I thought, I thought the camera angles in the movie were very good. Um, I, yeah, I thought that, that, that brings forward, it brings you intensely into the moment. And of course that's, that's very Hitchcock. So, um, you know, but from a Catholic perspective, I mean, the movie, gosh, it, it just shows the, the depths of sin. I mean, here, here Keller was ready to have, uh, was ready to have Father Logan, you know, go to prison. And obviously, you know, moving forward, um, after he was, he was acquitted, you know, his name was certainly ruined and his reputation was ruined. I mean, uh, I can't imagine the diocese, if that had been played out in real life, would have kept him in the same diocese because, or in, certainly not the same parish because, uh, you know, of the scandal that it would have brought, you know, to the faithful. So it shows really how Keller was not repentant up to the very last second because he was prepared to let father go rot in jail and he didn't, uh, he didn't do his penance. He didn't return the money. Uh, and uh, so I, I just thought this was, a, this was a, a great view of what priests have to deal with on a day-in, day-out basis. Certainly not in the case of, of necessarily physical murder, even though that's, that's possible. But they have to deal with people like this. I mean, because Jimmy Keller was a real dirtbag. I mean, he, he, was, he, was, he was just a real dirtbag. Uh, but yet, I think there's a little bit of all of us in Keller. Um, and uh, I, I just... I thought this was a great movie. I highly recommend it. In terms of uh, you know kissing scenes, there's a there's a little bit of a flashback where um, where Ruth and Father Logan, when he was still Michael Logan, were you know they were they were courting, and it shows a real quick kissing scene. But I also look too at the uh, going in their backstory when they were in the pavilion together. It shows clearly that there was nothing that went on there because you know they they get lost and then they're 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 in the little uh little gazebo out in this backyard and they're you know ruth is in a chair with a jacket on and father logan who's still michael logan at the time just slept in the chair with his head on the table so hitchcock went to great great lengths to show there was no impropriety there and and uh you know no sin and so i thought that was uh uh, you know, compared that to today's films, and my goodness, I mean, it, it, it's really, a, I almost say a masterpiece, because I think this is, a, I think this is one of Hitchcock's better work. I, I, I really do. I think Hitchcock nailed this, and if you're a Catholic and you watch this show through, through the lenses of the faith, it's really going to impress you. So, overall, I give it uh, kind of a five-star rating. I would say it's a solid four-star, and uh, leaning towards five stars, but I think five stars is sort of that elusive beast that uh, is rarely grabbable. <laughs> so overall, definitely check it out. Highly recommend it. Hitchcock's, I confess. Well, of course, we give a great thanks to, to Justin for for sharing his thoughts, uh, especially while he was traveling, took the time to to share some of those those musings with us. And I, I thought it was really, really relevant. The first thing I want to take up on was this idea of Keller as us. So again, we're sketching their spoilers here to Keller is someone who commits a murder and he confesses early on and we think, okay, you committed something heinous, it's terrible, but uh, you went to confession and we see that uh, he says, father tells him to return the money and he finds a way to return the money. Now there's a sub, there are two other subplots that are running alongside, which start Keller, uh, Keller's suspicion. So, why did Father Logan come to the scene of the murder? Was it because he wanted to out, you know, out Keller to everyone? And Matt Keller confronts him later. Why did you come, Father? Were you going to tell the police? 
And uh, no, he had his own business there. And it's a, a really a rich subplot. And I it's actually, I can't even really say subplot because it's integral to the story. But uh, Keller as us, the repentant sinner who then immediately turns back against against our Lord. The the sinner who asks for forgiveness and then goes goes right back into sinning. And it reminds me there's a there's a prayer of of, of Saint Augustine uh in, in which he, he recounts our, our 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 fickle our fickle attitude that that we you know we, we ask for, for forgiveness and, and then and we we take back our our uh, our contrition. And uh, I'm, I'm going to read this, this prayer of St. Augustine. I think it's particularly helpful to think about Keller. Um, we feel the punishment of sin, yet withdraw not from the obstinacy of sinning. Under thy lash our inconstancy is visited, but our sinfulness is not changed. Our suffering soul is tormented, but our neck is not bent. Our life groans under sorrow, yet men's not indeed. If thou spare us, we correct not our ways. If thou punish us, we cannot endure it. In time of correction, we confess our wrongdoing. This is Keller. After thy visitation, we forget that we have wept. If thou stretchest forth thy hand, we promise amendment. If thou withholdest the sword, we keep not our promise. If thou strikest us, we cry for mercy. If thou sparest, we again provoke thee to strike. Here we are before thee, O Lord, shameless criminals. We know that unless thou pardon, we shall deservedly perish. Grant then, O Almighty Father, without our deserving it, the pardon we ask for, thou who madest us out of nothing, those who ask thee. So the reason why Keller does such a good job of representing the everyman, Justin said there's a little bit of Keller, I would say, you know, there's a lot of Keller in all of us, or we are Keller. I should just wear a T-shirt, you know, to remind myself around because we are Keller. And Keller increasingly throughout the film then becomes paranoid and then loses whatever fruit of repentance that we had early on. So he returns the money, you know, he goes to confession, that part's over, but then it just keeps going further and further until he he frames father for the murder and then... uh, uh, kills his wife and then uh, gets himself killed, but in the end ends up going to confession, and and the priest, as as our Lord, has to forgive the soul who, at the moment of death, seeks contrition. Because even there, as as disgusting and, and vile as Keller is, as we are, our Lord is willing to forgive a truly penitent sinner. And Keller, at the end, is that truly? I mean, from all in, from from the externals, he is that uh, penitent sinner. Of course, all of us have to account for our, to our Lord in our own way. But as far as the film portrays, uh, I, I think that we see penance there. Uh, Justin referred to the the, uh, the, <laughs> the sort of Bishop Sanborn, the smoochy smoochy factor. Um, you know, on a on a one to five smooch factor, I would give it maybe a, a one or a two. Um, we're talking about you know a kiss for maybe two or three seconds, uh, just very brief and, and a quite a, a loving kiss without being overly uh, passionate. Um, Justin refers to the cinematography. Uh, 
I, I have to admit, my own confession is that I'm an enormous Hitchcock fan. I've seen every movie he's ever done at least uh, a few times. Uh, so, several movies I've seen, you know, over over a dozen times. And that, that's a discussion for another time. Um, not all of Hitchcock's work is is something that should be viewed as I, as I came to learn over time. I, I didn't know as I was in my younger years as I was watching. But uh, this is a film that, that is so thoroughly Catholic. And I, I don't know whether it was a matter of the censors, because keep in mind, at this time we had the, the, film, the film code, and so Hitchcock had to abide by certain things. But this goes above and beyond adhering to the, the, the production code. This was an overtly Catholic film. There, there's a couple nitpicky moments, absolutely. There's a scene in which Father is walking. He walks by two nuns. He doesn't say a word. I mean, even common courtesy, you would say, hello, sister, and they would say, hello, father. There's nothing there. And also that there isn't a Beretta worn at the time in Quebec. It probably would have been Berettas worn outside. You can understand maybe for an American audience that might have seemed strange. Um, uh, another notion, the idea of the LUV love uh, notion of marriage. We see this within a subplot of one of the characters, the, the woman who was in love with what who would become Father Logan, Michael Logan, and her own notion of what marriage is supposed to be is, is you know, it's this, this person I'm passionately in love with, as opposed to the person who would be my spouse that would help me get to heaven. I think that that's exposed. It isn't, the spotlight's not on there, but I think it's a very teachable moment if you're watching these, watching this film with uh, children. Um, and when I say children, I, again, I, I come at this in the context of being an uncle to eight but a father of none. So you'll have to make your own decision on showing it. But I think uh, even with the themes and, and some of the violence, uh, there's a violent theme here. Um, someone over the age of, let's say, 11 or 12, there's a, a great teachable moment here when you're talking about, you know, honey, what is this, you know, what does marriage mean? How, is, is what she is what she's doing. And, and also, you can see she's quite worldly in the way that she dresses. And there's a divide there with her and Father Logan that he came back from more changed, more focused on his religion, and, and she never, she didn't go on a journey. She stayed where she was. Hitchcock does an excellent job of having crucifixes omnipresent throughout the film. They're just absolutely everywhere. And you have that notion of the cross. You have that notion of what it means to be a priest. The priest is is crucified, not simply in his work, but in this particular case, we're watching it happen, that he is actually being accused of the crime when all he did was give a sinner comfort uh, through the sacrament of confession. But he is he is taking on that sin upon himself. And and that is exactly what our Lord does. He takes he takes all that ugliness and all of our, our sinfulness upon himself. And that is is something we don't really ever consider uh, in our in our daily lives. I think I think during Lent, it's uh, when we do Stations of the Cross, very very easy for us to think about that. But I think what the film does is it helps remind us of that in a more immediate sense. That here, this human priest, not our Lord, but an altar Christus, is taking on this one particular visible sin and what it does to him. We also see a reverse way of the cross uh, at the end of the film. And you'll, you'll see what I mean when you see it. But uh, instead of being found guilty, Father is found innocent, and he comes down this this gallery, and everyone's around. You know, he's, he's his reputation is ruined. Where there's smoke, there's fire. All of this, 
Um, and but it's the reverse of our Lord. So uh, the way of the cross was a, a way up to be condemned and then to die. But in this case, Father Logan is found innocent, and he descends back to the real world. His reputation completely destroyed. Alma uh, Keller's wife comes up as a Veronica figure to comfort Father Logan. Uh, obviously, he doesn't have sweats or blood over his face, but she wants to comfort him, and she wants to tell the police that uh, that her husband actually did it. And then she starts to point him out. Keller shoots her. So it's uh, it, it has a lot for the Christian. I, I, I frankly think that someone who's not a Christian is still going to enjoy this movie. They, they may have a lot of questions. Maybe a really great movie to, to watch with a, a non-Catholic friend, because there's so many opportunities for someone of goodwill to ask questions and so many great, great ways for you to talk about, well, this is how a priest is and that's what they wear and, and look at how they're treated. Anyway, uh, I've had a lot of spoilers. I've covered covered everything I wanted to say. Uh, some things that I still would like to, but we've got to keep the show moving. Um, again, for any of you just joining us, you're listening to Trad Reviews Episode 3 on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm Stephen Heiner, your host. Today we've been talking about um, Monsignor Robert Hugh Benson's Lord of the World um, and uh, Alfred Hitchcock's I Confess, and, and now we're going to be talking about chess. It's, it's funny, it's uh, that Lord of the World is so well known. I was at dinner with some friends last night, and I was uh, I was talking about the fact that I would be talking about it on a show, and uh, they're all French, and uh, they know it. Um, it was translated, and it was a masterpiece for them too. Maître de le monde, and Lord of the World, and. Uh, it's true, you know, you know, it's a masterpiece when other people in other languages uh, care about it as well. And uh, I'm going to be ending with something quite international, which is the game of chess. And chess is uh, a, a game I, I really enjoy and uh, that I love to play. And uh, I play here actually quite, quite frequently here in Paris. And the way I thought I would go about this as opposed to, uh, Lord of the World, in which I talked about the author and I talked a little bit about some of the plot points, I confess, where both Justin and myself shared things that, that we liked about the movie. I'm not really going to go into the rules of chess. You can you can go on to Wikipedia, you can go on to any number of sites and, and find an uh, excellent explanation of the rules, the notations, opening theory, middle game theory, end game theory. What I thought I would do instead was I made a list of five five things I five things I love about chess or five reasons I, I really love chess and I thought I would use that as a jumping off point to explain why I love it so why do I love chess reason number one it teaches me patience I'm sure you can understand someone who's a cleric uh, someone who is an ENTJ on the Myers-Briggs scale is someone who needs patience it's something that I've been challenged with throughout my life and I'd like to think that I've gotten better. I'm sure my colleagues can tell you that uh, I still have a long way to go, and I'll accept that criticism. But chess doesn't allow you to not be patient. You have to be, not only as you are considering your move, but as your opponent is waiting to move. Your opponent isn't going to necessarily move at a speed you want, or sometimes they'll move as it is a 
one of uh, one of my colleagues here in France that I've been playing with, he's a blitz player. And so whenever we play a slow game, slow game or a time game, the challenge for him is he my my pace of, of movement messes with him because he's not used to to playing a slow game. So teaches me patience because I have to think about what I'd like to do. And I also have to wait on my opponent. And and uh, as you're as you're thinking, uh, the discipline that comes to your mind is, as I think, uh, a positive. I think it's something that can help enrich you as a person. Second reason I love chess: it's international. No matter where I am in the world, I can play chess with someone. It's it's like the Latin mass. It really is. I you know I I often laugh at the fact that there are there are many people at the chapel I attend on Sunday who don't speak a word of English, but we can sit next to each other in mass and understand the language uh, like Pentecost uh, together. And I had set up a, a meetup group here in in Paris and almost, uh, I would say almost immediately from the very first meetup had a ton of people show up, six, seven, eight people from all over the world who were in Paris and wanted to play chess. And it's, it's been fascinating and, and fun. And anywhere you go, you put out a chessboard and people will play. You go and, and you can see people play. Um, one of the great places in Paris is at uh, the Jardin du Luxembourg, uh, the Luxembourg Garden. There's a place where old men play timed and blitz games and they'll make your head spin. They're absolute masters. Third reason I love chess. The rules are basic and simple, but the variations are infinite. You're never going to play the same game. You may play the same opening, uh, but uh, you, unless you and your opponent are, are mirror images of, of yourself, you're, you're always going to, to look at something differently. And that's fun whenever you're looking at a game that you uh, would uh, would have an opportunity to, to have variations of it. Now, I had some people email before this, the episode reminding me, you know, there was a clerical pro, there's a prohibition against clerics playing chess. And unfortunately, all of, all of my consulting clergy, this is a busy time for them. And I, I wasn't able to get a, an opinion, but at least one, one priest had written back to say, well, even keep in mind that prohibitions for the clergy aren't necessarily binding on the faithful, obviously, I think there's a prohibition against clergy gambling, but uh, the faithful are not prohibited from gambling. So uh, it's a bad idea to take a prohibition of priests not being allowed to ch play chess means that uh, lay people shouldn't be allowed to play chess. Um, I think, obviously, within the context of a, a clerical vocation, it might be seen as, uh, um, well, I, I don't want to speculate. Uh, I'll leave that to any priest if you want to talk to them about whether they should play chess, but uh, there's no prohibition from the church against laymen playing chess. Fourth reason, uh, you are forced to be strategic. I think this is uh, an important life skill. I think it's important to strategize. Uh, I think one of the basic ways we do it every day is when we make up our list of errands or we make up our list of what are we going to do today? And maybe you don't work that way. That's definitely how I start every morning is I make a list of the 10 things that I'm going to do that day. And that's, that's really what I focus on. And in chess, you've got to look one move out, two move out, three moves out, four moves out, sometimes 10 moves out. And at that point, the variations become boggling because you're thinking of 
you're thinking of what is the best possible move. You always want to assume what is the best possible move that your opponent will make in um, comparison to yours. So if you move a knight, let's say you knight to c3, and you're thinking, well, my opponent really should do this. This would be the best possible move. Uh, and then you have to work all the way backwards or forwards from that from that position. You don't know whether your opponent will make the best possible move. And sometimes a, a disastrous blundering move from your opponent can throw you off even more than expecting the very best move because it was such a bad move that you don't... Uh, you can be surprised by a bad move and it can help you get into a bad position as well. But thinking ahead, I think this is a good life skill for an adult, much less uh, children. I think children who play chess are at an enormous advantage because of how they're forced to think. And children take to chess, to foreign languages, to math at a very young age, like ducks to water. And I think it's a fantastic recreation and a, a great learning. Um, uh, environment uh, we talked about in the the two sports shows on clerical conversations the idea of you know what uh, what healthy competition can be or, or what can be a good way to to learn sportsmanship and I think uh, a good game of chess uh, I I'm pretty sure I lost every game I've ever played with my my dad we haven't played in, in recent years oddly enough uh, our family's very obsessed with uh, Parcheesi uh, and other games like that. So my father and I don't get to play chess, but I'm quite committed to playing uh, more games with him uh, as time goes on. But when I was younger, he would he would kill me all the time. And but I enjoyed it. I just went back for more. And the fifth reason I suppose ties into reason number four: uh, courtesy, sportsmanship, and class. When I played at chess tournaments, I've had the privilege of playing at the St. Louis uh, Chess Center, which is the uh, headquarters, uh, you could say, of, of chess in, in North America and the United States. It's where the, the U.S. championship is held every year. I had a chance, my one of, you know, two of my chess tutors, grandmasters, ranked in the top 20 in the United States. They played there. Um, and you see people get dressed up. They're in suits to play tournaments. Uh, there's a formality and a respect and a, a class there and a real collaborative uh, spirit uh, of amity and, and friendship that, uh, yes, I, I want to beat you uh, when we're playing, but afterwards, let's, let's look at the game together. And I'll watch, uh, I would watch 14, 13-year-olds play. Then after the game, they would go back and they would analyze their moves. And the one who had won had gone, would go back and say, look, here's the move you should have made. And, and this is why this was a bad move. Well, that's, that's just brilliant. I, I don't know that you have the opportunity to do that, let's say, in tennis or in another sport where you can replay the match. I, I, don't, I don't see – maybe it's done. You know, who, who knows? I, I don't know. But you know, they'd go back and watch the match video and say, see, your backhand was wrong here. You should have you know, gone to the forehand or something like that. Uh, whereas in chess, it's done quite frequently when people are competing. Um, obviously not right in the middle of a tournament. You have to step away from the tournament floor in order to replay and analyze. But I've done it with many an opponent. And it's humbling, too. I, I can't tell you how many times I've been beat by a 12, 13, 14-year-old kid who's much higher. I'm USCF rated, so they're in the thousands and I'm in the hundreds as far as their rating goes. And it's good. I, I mean, there's nothing that, that, an ego, that does an ego better than a bruising, I think. And being beat by a 12-year-old kid, um, 
you know, with braces and glasses, you know, who uh, shakes your hand afterwards is, uh, I think it's a wonderful thing. Uh, something I enjoy. So those are the five reasons that I love chess. It's a simple enough game to, to, to learn and get started with. As I said, you can, you can get a chess set for, you know, five, 10 bucks. I don't even think it costs that much. Again, I'm talking about U.S. prices. I always forget. Now I live in Europe where everything costs more. Uh, some things don't. Uh, some food items certainly don't. I, I joke all the time that you can get jam and honey here for, for nothing. For nothing. You can get this huge, beautiful jar of like fig jam or or black currant and cherry jam for like two bucks, essentially. Whereas in America, you know, such a gourmet jam would be like six, seven dollars. So there are some things that are cheaper here in France. But uh, just getting a basic chessboard here, I couldn't, I couldn't bring my, you know, classic boards over. It's like 14, 15 bucks, but you could get something for cheaper. You can play online. Uh, there's all sorts of apps and, and options. It's never been easier to, to learn online, um, but it's a, it's a great family activity. Uh, and I can highly recommend it uh, on the, on the one to five scale, I would clearly give it a five. And I don't have any other consultants here with, with me today to second that. So I'm happy to be disputed by my, my fellow hosts on the network, but uh, it's my show. So I'm entitled to my opinion. I want to thank you all for, for joining me tonight for episode three of, of Trad Reviews. If you've enjoyed uh, what you've heard, feel free to, to drop us a line. Um, we're pretty easily found, tradreviews at truerestoration.org. Please also remember that Trad Reviews is a production of the Restoration Radio Network, all rights reserved. Any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. Permission can usually be very easily obtained by writing to mail. M-A-I-L at truerestoration.org. If you're listening to our show on iTunes or Stitcher, please make sure to leave us ratings and reviews. It helps those looking for truly Catholic programming to more easily find our work. And as I said before, if you there's a book, movie, game that you'd like to hear reviewed, uh, it might already be in our queue for our show plans for this season, but maybe it's not, and it's something that should be brought to our attention for, for season three, this show makes it into season four, if this show makes it into season four. But uh, we're always here um, to listen to you and, and hope that you uh, will join us. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, that you would please consider making whatever donation is possible to our apostolate, no matter how small it may be. To those of you who have donated, a heartfelt thank you for your kindness and generosity. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or simply even an ave for our work the next time you pray. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love or would like to reproduce our copyrighted work on your channel in some format. We'd love to hear from you. For the restoration, I am Stephen Heiner. May God bless you.
This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.